Thank you, Bill. Good morning, church. Oh, that was a hearty good morning. I almost got thrown back there. Good job. Good morning. It's really the case every week. You know, sometimes it all comes down to a single choice. Sometimes it all comes down to a single choice. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire TV game show first aired in 1999 with host Regis uh, Philburn. And likely you're familiar with the show in which the host asks the contestant trivia questions that uh, start out easy at first, begin get progressively harder and harder. That also means that each question was worth more and more, ranging from 100 to $1 million. And if you answered all 15 questions correctly, you'd win a million dollars. Well, in one episode, the contestant, John Carpenter, made it to the final question. His final question was, which of these U.S. presidents appeared on the television series Laughing? Which of these U.S. presidents appeared on the television series Laughing? A, Lyndon Johnson, B, Richard Nixon, C, Jimmy Carter, D, Gerald Ford. Now, maybe you're wondering what the answer is, or you're wondering right now, what's laughing? <laughs> Some of you. Well, John Carpenter, he had a choice to make. Would he leave with $500,000 or risk all but $32,000 for a million? And he had all of his lifelines left, apparently, and one lifeline was to call a friend, and so he called his dad. And when the dad got on the phone, John Carpenter said, Hi, Dad. I don't really need your help. I just wanted you to know, I'm about to win a million dollars. And the audience just goes wild, and Regis smiles, and John Carpenter says, The president who appeared on Laughing is Richard Nixon. Now, you all knew that, of course, right? And he said, That's my final answer. And John Carpenter was the first player to ever win a million dollars. He made the right choice. In our study in the book of Proverbs, it has been abundantly clear that our choices matter. And sometimes it all comes down to a single choice. We spent the last month and a half looking at the first seven chapters in Proverbs. Now, if you were here last week, I commend you uh, for hanging in there through an awkward, though uh, necessary topic. If you weren't here last week, you don't know what you missed. And I don't plan to review this morning last week's message, but let me tell you, it was a memorable time, at least from my perspective. Well, today, now you're all curious, you're going to be checking this one out. Today, we'll be looking at chapters 8 and 9, and uh, what concludes really the first half of our series in Proverbs, beginning next week, uh, we will then take up looking at uh, six different topics from the sayings that are spread uh, throughout the rest of Proverbs. But it's in the first nine chapters that provide the context for reading the rest of Proverbs. Now, I'm going to spend most of our time this morning looking at um, chapter 9. Uh, but before we do, I want to draw out a couple of key principles from chapter 8. Uh, I just don't have the time to look at chapter 8. Maybe I'll come back to it sometime. Um, but read it for yourself. There's a lot here. And I'm just going to pull out two principles from chapter 8 before we go on to chapter 9. The first principle is, God himself did nothing without wisdom. It really sets us up for this morning very nicely. God himself did nothing without wisdom. 
Chapter 8 is all about wisdom's role in the creation of the world. That before uh, a creation of the world, God wired wisdom into the cosmos. Wisdom is how everything started and how everything still works. So look with me at chapter 8 of Proverbs, and we're going to look at verse 27. Verse 27, and speaking of wisdom, it says, I, wisdom, was there when he set the heavens in place, when God marked out the horizon on the face of the deep. Verse 28, we could supply the words, wisdom was there when God established the clouds above. Verse 29, wisdom was there when God gave the sea its boundaries so the waters could not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, wisdom was there. Verse 30, then I, wisdom, was a craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. Now there's a lot of discussion around chapter 8, and that wisdom is referring to Jesus and all of that, and you can explore that for yourself. But at face value here, we're speaking of wisdom. Wisdom. And do you see it here? God himself did nothing without wisdom. Now, if that's the case, then how can we do anything without wisdom? See, wisdom's not optional. It's a necessity. Will you choose it? That leads to our second principle from chapter 8. Choosing wisdom is a matter of life and death. Choosing wisdom is a matter of life and death. Look at with me the last two verses of Proverbs chapter 8. First one is verse 35. I'm going to pick it up in verse 35. Wisdom speaking here. And wisdom says, Whoever finds me, wisdom finds life and receives favor from the Lord. But whoever fails to find me harms himself. All who hate me love death. The choice between wisdom and folly is a choice between life and death, between a life worth living and a life of self-inflicted pain. And sometimes it all comes down to a single choice. And what is at stake is greater than a million dollars. Chapter 8, verse 11, the last verse that Bill read for us. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, more precious than a million dollars. And nothing you desire can compare with her. Now, will you choose the wise path or the foolish path? That leads neatly into what I want to focus on this morning as we conclude our framework for understanding all the punchy little proverbs this, pro- that this book is known for. And so, so turn our attention to chapter 9. Chapter 9. And, and I really hope you're following along because this is where it's at is as you're following it and reading it for yourself here. But in chapter 9, as we've seen in earlier chapters of Proverb, woman, wisdom turns into a woman. The woman invites us to dinner. Now, I find this rather interesting, and perhaps this is just how my mind works, and you won't find it interesting at all. But you'll recall that Solomon's primary audience is men, young men. And what are young men thinking about? Women and food. I mean, we're really not much more complicated than that. As I said first, I'm probably going to get in trouble for that, but I don't care. So, so Solomon speaks their language, right? He, he'll talk about women and food. And he uses effective uh, communication tool of personification. 
In case the idea of wisdom is just too abstract, he personifies it by giving it personal characteristics. And so I want to first look at two dinner invitations. Two dinner invitations. The first invitation to dinner is Lady Wisdom's house. Follow along in the Bibles, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has honed out its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maids, and she calls from the highest point of the city. And so the, the, the grill is fired up. There's shrimp on the barbie. There's filet mignon. There's some lobster tails. There's sweet corn boiling, uh, boiling in a pan, and you're getting all hungry right now. She serves the classic Chianti wine. She serves nothing but the best. And she calls out, verse 4, Let all who are simple come in here, verse 5, Come eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. All right, what can we observe about Lady Wisdom? Well, for one thing, the woman here is busy with preparation. She works with all diligence, much like what we see in chapter 31 of Proverbs of the virtuous woman. She's not idle. She's not meddling in people's lives. She's a hard worker. And so the table is set beautifully. And so we could say this about wisdom. It's desirable. There's an, there's an attractiveness about wisdom that beautifies everything it touches. That's true of wisdom. When wisdom shows up, everyone benefits. That person who speaks with wisdom has an attraction about him or her that you long to have for yourself. And what do you find if you accept this dinner invitation? Look at verse 6. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of understanding. That's very similar to what we saw at the end of chapter 8, verse 35. Whoever finds me finds life and receives favor from the Lord. And so the table is spread with wisdom that's guaranteed to satisfy you in every area of your life. It guarantees that you can live skillfully in this world. That's the first dinner invitation. Will you choose it? Are you listening to God's invitation to dinner? It's been said it's a dangerous thing to reject God's invitation because you never know when it may be your last one. Now turn our attention to the second dinner invitation. It's found in the last six verses. So we have the first six verses, Lady Wisdom. Now we have the last six verses. It's going to be her, Lady Wisdom's counterpart. And so follow along here. I'm going to read 13 through 18, the last six verses here. And I want you to notice as I do the comparisons as well as what's different about Woman Folly's dinner invitation from Lady Wisdom's invitation. All right? Verse 13, follow along. The woman Folly is loud. She's undisciplined and without knowledge. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by who go straight on their way. And, and, and what does she call out to those who pass by? Verse 16, let all who are simple come in here. Now, what you should notice right off about woman folly is that she's calling out, you see it, to, to the same audience as Lady Wisdom. Verse 4, verse 16, both say the same thing. Let all who are simple come in here. Both are trying to get the simple to come in for dinner. Now, the simple does not refer to intelligence 
or, or, or one's way of life. It describes a, a person, really, who is still on the fence. They're noncommittal. They're unsure. They're, some, they're still somewhere in the middle. One writer uh, referred to the simple as the swing voters of their day. <laughs> they're, out, they're the ones, the politicians, are trying to sway to their side. It's not a bad way to see it. Because that's what you have here. The simple is strolling down the street, keeping his options open, still trying to decide whether to join wisdom for dinner or join folly for dinner. And the simple has a choice to make. Sometimes it all comes down to one choice. Now the two houses are here pictured as being on the same street, really. It's kind of like uh, you see sometimes in busy areas of business. I, I remember living in Portland on, on, in Saco, Maine, right on Route 1. You had all these dealerships right next to each other. And you go, that doesn't make sense. No, it's actually good marketing. Because each dealer knows if you're looking to buy a car and you're out shopping, if you stop at one dealership, you're likely stopping the other dealership as well. So here is, is woman Folly calling out because she knows you're still shopping. You haven't made up your mind about which one you're going to choose. And so woman Folly here, she's loud. She's actually louder uh, than, than, than wisdom because she's trying to drown out wisdom. That's what uh, folly does. And she draws attention to herself. She's seductive. In contrast to Lady Wisdom, who is busily making all the preparations for a beautiful, elegant dinner, woman folly is sitting idly on the porch. Now, it's worth noting, though, how woman folly mirrors Lady Wisdom. Folks, that's how it is with folly. It doesn't come right out and say, Hey, I'm foolish. Follow me. No, it mimics wisdom. It can look the same to any casual observer. It's a, it's a counterfeit, though, no matter how much it might be doctored up. Chuck Swindoll tells the true story of a physician's wife who put on an elegant uh, student reception at her home in Miami. And the wife just graduated from a gourmet cooking class, and so she decided it was time to put her skill to the ultimate test. And did she ever? Swindoll says a true story that she took some, uh, some dog food, <laughs> she dockered it up, and then <laughs> and served these morsels on delicate little crackers with a wedge of imported cheese and bacon chips and olive and a, and a sliver of pimento on top. And she put them on a couple of silver trays, and with a sly grin, she watched them just disappear before her eyes. That's right. It was hors d'oeuvres a la Elpo. <laughs> and so when all says one student couldn't get enough of it, he kept coming back for more. And he says, not sure how the lady broke the news to him, but perhaps when he found out the truth, he barked and bit her on the leg, he says. I don't know. <laughs> the point is, no matter how Alpo is served, it's still dog food. <laughs> In the same way, no matter how foolishness is served, it's still foolishness. Don't let the outer appearance reel you in. Woman folly is banking on the hope that this undecided soul will lose all common sense like we saw last week and throw away all that is good and jump in for the moment. And what's on the menu at Woman Folly's house? Look at verse 17. 
as that stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious. And you say, water? <laughs> I mean, that's not very tempting. Who would fall for that? Why would anyone eat there? The answer is found in two words. In that verse, stolen, secret. The strength of the temptation is its secrecy. And the fact that it's stolen and off limits, let's be honest, it increases the excitement. The point is, the forbidden can be so delightful. That is precisely what is at the core of any temptation, is that you're, you're invited to have what you don't have, and we can do it in secret. What is off limits is the appeal. Isn't that what happened in the garden at the beginning of time here and in, in the Garden of Eden when the serpent approached Eve? What did the serpent focus on? The serpent said something in essence like this, you know, what God has said to you, Eve, is, is really the thing that's going to satisfy you. Matter of fact, that's why God is withholding you that from you. He doesn't want you to have something good. You're, you're, you're missing out, Eve. Take that which is forbidden Secretive, stolen, we find delight in what is forbidden. It doesn't matter the nutritional value when you're hungry, you'll take anything at that point. It's kind of like when you go grocery shopping when you're hungry. <laughs> How's that work out? What happens? Ooh, double stuff Oreos, six different kinds of chips, lucky charms. Box of powdered donuts, Fritos, got to have Fritos, chocolate this, chocolate that. And you, you get up to the register, the cashier rings you out and you go, what? How much? You bought much more food than you needed. Why aren't we feasting on what is good? Why aren't we feasting on God and the spread that he's laying out before us? Well, because we have stuffed ourselves with junk food. John Piper puts it best. He says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. Now get this. He says, it's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world's. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. He says, God did not create you for this. There's an appetite for God within, and it can be awakened. I ask you the question, is God's word not that satisfying to you as of late? Has serving him become kind of commonplace? Home life has, has been kind of blah lately. We need to pray for God to give us new tastes or to awaken the desire within for him. Otherwise, we just might settle for Elpo and not know it, not really care. Because when your hunger wanes, wanes towards the things of God, the things he provides, you're set up to accept the substitute. Well, we come to the twist in the passage, in Proverbs 9. Woman Folly mentions the pleasure, but it's true with all temptation. Nothing said of the after effects of the meal. Now, this is worth, worse than uh, indigestion. This really ought to give us major heartburn as we read it. 
Because it isn't as advertised. Never is. It should have said, dinner in the grave. Because that's the end result, kind of like the afterward of that last domino we looked at last week. Here lies the truth about temptation. We think we're going to a feast, but instead we end up at a funeral. Verse 18. But little do they know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of the grave. That is not a pretty picture. Two hosts, two invitations, two who are ready to serve their guests. The choice between wisdom and folly is really a choice between life and death. And what is the determining factor as to where you will feel most at home? How do we choose our dinner partner? What is involved there? really comes down to this. It is no accident that placed in the middle of these two invitations is verses 7 through 12. 1 through 6, lady wisdom. 13 through 18, lady folly. Sandwiched in the middle, 7 through 12, in the critical issue of how we respond to correction and instruction. Two different responses here. I pick it up in verse 7. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes a wicked man and cures abuse. Do not rebuke a mocker, he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Instruct a wise man who will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. First pass, I went, I'm not sure how that fits into all this, but boy, it fits. I mean, obviously, I just had to figure it out. Because you ask the question, what difference does it make how I respond to correction? Well, it's the difference between entering the house of wisdom or entering the house of folly for dinner. I mean, you think it's really no big deal if you blow off someone's rebuke? Think again. This is the watershed of wisdom right here. Will we embrace correction or we despise it. On one occasion, Abraham Lincoln, to please a certain politician, issued a command to transfer uh, certain regiments. One, uh, when Secretary of War Edwin Stanton received the order from the president, he refused to carry it out, saying the president was a fool. When Lincoln was told this, <laughs> he said, if Stanton said I'm a fool, then I must be a fool. For he's nearly always right. I'll go see for myself. And Lincoln went into private quarters and spoke with Stanton face to face. And after a few minutes, as the two men talked, the president quickly realized that his decision was a serious mistake. And without hesitation, he withdrew it. It is, as preacher Charles Spurgeon said, a person who says, I was wrong, really in effect says, I'm a little wiser today than I was yesterday. Here's your lifeline. Be teachable. Pastor Brian, be teachable. Listen to correction. It can play a major role in diffusing conflict. And it always makes a wise person wiser. Verse 9, instruct a wise man, he'll be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will add to his learning. You see, if you are wise enough to know you're not wise enough, you can wise up and add to your learning. If you're wise enough to know you're not wise enough, 
you can wise up and add to your learning. Now, on the other hand, fools want to be told that they're doing fine. And they will bite your head off if you give them correction. Now, I'm not approaching these verses on our end as to giving rebuke. That's another subject for another time. I want us to see the response, though, and not miss this. Because what happens when you go to a person and you rebuke them and, and correct them in love, their defenses and pride, if they really don't, if they're a fool, they'll say, who are you to tell me what's wrong in my life? You're not perfect. Oh, Oh, okay, so you're waiting for only perfect people to come and show you your fault. You'll die a fool. And do you know what will happen if you can't receive correction? People will stop correcting you. You go, good. No. No, not because you're doing okay, but because they decide it isn't worth it to tell you. It isn't worth it to get the, the abuse to the returned insults, for you to chop their head off. Instead of standing up to you, they're just going to let you be because it's just not worth it. See, we all need people who will stand up to us. Wise people pay attention to instruction. They want the truth, even if it's unpleasant. They benefit from rebuke because all of us have blind spots. And if we stop listening to instruction today, we will stop growing tomorrow. So, the million dollar question, pun intended, how do you respond to correction? Do you appreciate it or do you begrudge it? Do you accept it, embrace it, or do you reject it? And here's the test. Do you love the people who correct you? I mean, someone comes to you and corrects you, and you go, oh, thanks, can I give you a hug? <laughs> and not the kind of hug that you squeeze all, you know, all the air out of them and they pass out. Not that kind of hug. Do you love them for correcting you? Say, so, you know, can I take you to lunch? <laughs> See, a wise person says, thanks, I needed that. Maybe not right off. Hopefully you get there. Hopefully I do. Because after all, if we aren't told where we're getting it wrong, then how can we grow? If we're wise, we're picking up the glass of correction at Lady Wisdom's house and saying, I need more of this in my life. I mean, we first taste it. We're, we're, we're not going to like the taste, but it isn't the drink's fault. It's an acquired taste. But the wise drink of it, and they're glad they did drink of it because they'll be wiser. They will grow because you stop taking correction today, you stop growing tomorrow. How have you been responding to correction these days? Will you listen to rebuke? And you know what? That rebuke can come in many forms. For example, you might recall that I told you about a time when my youngest, Nicole, was four years old. She might have been even three years old. But she was in the... <laughs> He was in the back seat of, of the car that I, that I, as we were driving along. And I tell you way too many of my, my, my antics in the car that you're never going to want to drive with me. But she was in the back seat of the car as I was driving along. And I approached a car in front of me who was moving rather slowly. And I came up on this car that was moving rather slowly, kind of quickly. And I just backed off a little bit when my four-year-old in the back blurted out, Move it, mister! <laughs> and I thought, Wow. She must have got that from Donna. No. 
No, I knew, I knew exactly where she got that from. I know exactly. Chuck Swindoll says the last part of a man to be sanctified is right foot. Yeah, I'm still working on it. He is. It was a rebuke though. More is caught than taught. Where'd she get it from? See, that rebuke can come through a child. A child who might say to you, Dad, how come you don't play ball with me anymore? How come we haven't gone fishing for a long time? Or, Mom, why do you have to go out again tonight? Perhaps the rebukes found the words, uh, something has been negative about life lately. Well, honey, you've been a little edgy lately, and I don't, I don't really see a lot of joy in your life. Am I remaining teachable? Young person, when you're corrected by your teacher or your boss or your parent or your coach or some authority in your life, check your attitude. If you can embrace that correction, you just might spare yourself from a lot of unnecessary pain going forward. Church, if you respond to criticism, if your response to criticism, you get all huffy and you storm off and you're just going to go to another church or go find some people who agree with you, then you will soon discover a dreadful loneliness. You may hurt others, but ultimately you're hurting yourself. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, if you're a mocker, you alone will suffer. You'll be miserable. A mocker is one who's totally closed to counsel. They become stiff-necked. That's why Proverbs 29.1 says these strong words. A man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. The strong warning here is against anyone entering the slippery slope that ends with becoming a mocker. Are you slipping down the slope of folly because you refuse to listen to correction? How do you respond to correction? I don't know who said it, but it stuck with me. What people say about us is never quite true, but is never quite false either. They may miss the bullseye, but rarely fail to hit the target. In other words, find the grain of truth in what they're saying, even from your critics. Now, I'm not speaking to malicious criticism. I'm not talking about that. But criticism that may or may not be 100% accurate. See, the choice between wisdom and folly is directly related to our response to correction and instruction. If you start losing your taste for correction and instruction, you are in grave danger of wandering. It will be the difference between coming, becoming wise or becoming a fool. We have two choices. You can choose the wisdom of God this week and live, or you can choose to reject that and face the consequences of that choice. And sometimes it all comes down to a single choice. In the book, A View from the Zoo, and I'm pretty sure I've shared this with you before, but it really fit for today. Gary Richman, who was very familiar with, with animals, he tells a personal story about those who desire having raccoons as pets. And he says, raccoons go through a glandular change at about 24 months. After that, they often attack their owners. And since a 30-pound raccoon can be equal to a 100-pound dog in a fight, he says, I felt compelled to mention about that change that was going to be coming to a pet raccoon owner of a, by a young friend of mine. 
And so I said, this is what's going to happen, he said. She listened politely as I explained what would happen if she kept her raccoon. And, and he says, I'll never forget her answer. She said, it will be different for me. Bandit won't hurt me. He just wouldn't. Three months later, his friend underwent plastic surgery for facial lacerations sustained when her raccoon attacked her for no apparent reason. Folly's call often comes in adorable guise. And as we play with it, how easy it is to say, it'll be different for me. Have you said that? It'll be different. Be different for me. Wisdom would say, you're a fool to think so. It's time to decide which invitation you're going to answer. Don't you want to wise up to what matters most in life? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and as it's done to me this past week and as I said earlier, even as I preach it second time, there's a correcting and rebuking that goes on from your word. And your word does that. Second Timothy reminds us you gave us your word to correct us and get us on the right path again. So may it do that in our lives this morning in a very personal way. May it speak to us, correct us, instruct us, rebuke us if necessary, and that we wouldn't resist and try and stuff it down, but instead respond to it in a way that is helpful for us moving forward. And above all else, Lord, as we're going to sing here, make us hungry for spiritual things. Make us hungry for you. Awaken our appetite for you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.